Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have an exciting interview with the Fedora project leader, Matthew Miller. We check out what new with LibreOffice and what they've been up to. In our gaming section, we'll discuss Debian holding a gaming-focused conference. And of course, we have our popular tips, tricks, and software picks, all of this and so much more. It's coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode 195. You're tuned to the number one video-centric Linux podcast on the planet. Destination Linux is your source for great discussion, Linux and open source. My name's Noah. With me today are my fellow Fedora-wearing fanboys, Michael and Ryan, neither of which are running Fedora right now, unlike me. Let's find out what those non-Fedora users have been up to. <laughs> hey, Michael, what's new? I'm in the progress of tra transitioning to Fedora at the moment, so technically you're right, but it is happening, so next week we'll probably be using it, so... We'll see on I, that. I one. have a confession to make. The machine I'm running on right now might be Kubuntu. <laughs> oh, it, so you you're throwing shade and <laughs> <laughs> wow, unbelievable. Uh, Ryan, what are you running this week? Well, this week I'm still in Pop OS, but oh. I have been playing with Fedora as I mentioned last week on one of my laptops and, and enjoying the process. But this week, what I've been up to is VR, virtual Ooh. reality. In fact, sitting right here is a virtual reality headset for the PlayStation 4. But that's okay. not necessarily where I want to start this story. It starts with going shopping with the family. We're talking okay. the clothes, the sitting outside the store with my son and daughter while my wife shops for hour on end. And Can't my really. son points to the store and says, what's VR1 gaming, dad? And I'm like, <laughs> You're like, I'm going to go find out. Let's go find <laughs> out. So we go over there and they invite us in and they have all of these virtual reality stations set up. And mm -hmm. obviously with COVID and things, they have to do a lot of cleaning and only allow a couple people in at a time. But they're demoing all of this amazing virtual reality technology that my kids who are very young, obviously, they're going to be growing up with this at some Well, they're growing up with it now. Mm -hmm. And so I bought some of their tokens and let the kids play. And it was just such an amazing experience. It was an experience that you've talked about, Noah, having as well mm -hmm. when you've played with this virtual reality and this was the first time that I really got to see everything that they're doing. I mean, they have some of these machines where they are adding in kind of 3D effects outside of the virtual reality itself. Just really brings you into this world entirely. And my kids had such a good time that we instantly went to the store and found the virtual reality set for PlayStation 4. And we have been playing with that at home and the kids can't put it down. Like they have been playing endlessly with this thing nonstop. And I just can't tell you how much fun virtual reality is. So it kind of mm -hmm. reignited my excitement for what VR can be for computers. And of course, AR as well, just to see this technology growing and, and, and the prices of these are dropping tenfold. I mean, this was like 370 bucks, but if you think about other VR headsets that started eight, $900 or more, they're finally starting to come down in the price where most consumers can probably go pick one up. It's just been really exciting. I like how you that's said awesome. uh, like, you let your kids go play VR and it's like, yeah, 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 that's what you were doing. It wasn't like you were also playing the VR. She's like, yeah, it was just, you know, let, let the kids go play, of course. Good point. I was playing <laughs> a lot too. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this. Did, did it bother you at all that you're using this VR? I doubt it was running uh, Linux, right? Right. Whatever well, was, BSD for P PlayStation, right? Okay. We'll go with that. That's right. You said it was on a console. Does it bother you at all though that VR is a thing that is taking off in, you know, if you have a console game or you have a large game manufacturer, then you're going to get VR. But, you know, if you're just a guy that's sitting at home and 
it, does it, does that bother you at all that it that it that it's all tied to 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 major big companies and and it and it's not just like a raspberry pi that you can just take home and play with or not so much yeah i think it does although you know what's interesting is i was doing some research on the new oculus which i believe is owned by facebook so eh. But one of the things that was interesting to me about that is it came with a option for 32 gigabytes or 256 gigabytes. And that's because you actually don't need a computer for a lot of the games to even utilize the headset, which I did not know that was a thing with these major ones. And, and the other thing I'll tell you is that Steam, thanks for, to Valve, actually allows their headset to work within Linux. So you can play these VR games in Linux. So I think we're getting to, and there's a lot of headsets you'll see and their quality is not very good. Like I got a star Wars one that was like $190 or something. And it has two savers and you don't need a console and you don't need a computer. Everything just runs this one game through these, these headsets and it's okay. It's a different, completely different experience when you go with these major brands, obviously um, that are a little more expensive. So I think that will come in time, but you're right. right. There is again, another opportunity that, if Linux didn't have Valve pushing this, we would have nothing in the VR space. And today, maybe that's not a big deal because it's such a small part of the overall users. But tomorrow, that could be a major setback. Yeah, I think it's mostly because it's like we're still in the really early days of VR anyway. So maybe it's possible that it's because we're in the early days that we just don't have the full support, like, uh, you know, in the open source world aspect anyway. But the fact that Steam VR is uh, has support for Linux to the point where I'm pretty sure they even dropped support for Mac, but kept Linux and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Valve, and I think I've said that probably 45,000 times. And uh, I think I'm going to probably continue to do that in, in, periodically. So this week I've been working on a lot of updates to front page Linux and I'm super excited for people to check out the modifications we've made. So there's there's been a lot of improvements to the overall feel of the site. Like there's a lot more uh, content that's available now as well because there's a lot of great uh, articles being written on there, uh, especially from Eric Londo who's making the Linux Plus Plus and there's, he's got a really cool uh, mini faces of the Linux file system article that's up there and also some cool stuff with Wayland coming out this week. So check that out. I think it's great. Let me know what you think in the comments. Uh, but yeah, Front Page Linux is a fantastic website. If you haven't checked it out, you definitely need to do so now. Or I mean, continue watching the show, but after that. Then, then yeah, after. Then, yeah. then open it up. Yeah. yeah. So Noah, what have you been up to this week? I uh, I just got my Pinebook Pro uh, loaded up with Manjaro Arm. And um, I have to say, I was pretty impressed. You know, when I, when I, I've been playing with the Pinebook Pro now for about a year uh, off and on. And I, I, I've always been impressed with it. I've always thought it was a better device than what you pay for. I always think you get more than the $200 that you spent on it. But this week in particular, after I got Manjaro loaded on there, the speed, the performance, it started to feel honestly, like any other regular laptop. And I think that's really, I, I don't know. I'm just, I was just really impressed with it. And so um, the, what I, what I started to do today, and I didn't get real far with it, but I, I, I was attempting to load Manjaro arm onto the pine phone. So I have the both, I have both the original pine phone and I bought a second pine phone that came as the um, convergence package, uh, which comes the little type C dock. And stuff you're like the that. reason so, they have no stock. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're great devices. Anytime they announce something, I order it. I ordered the, the three Pine Time pack of watches. I ordered the dev kit. I mean, if they make it, Pine 64 makes it, I probably own it. Um, <laughs> and I just continue to be impressed with this company and what they're doing. So yeah, we're continue to bang around on that with Manjar Arm. I'm, I'm starting to put it through a little bit more of its paces now. I'm trying to get an encrypted file system on there and see how it works with Lux and stuff like that. So what made you that? decide to check that out? Because a lot of people believe Manjar Arm is 
the it, it it's one of the most complete operating systems for Pinebook. That was my experience yeah. with it. Is that did somebody talk you into it, or have you no, just heard that and decided to no, check I, it out? I was just not happy with the stock experience. I mean, I shouldn't say I wasn't happy. I was happy. It was good. I would equate the stock experience of of the Pinebook to that of a Chromebook. It's fine, um, but when you put Manjaro ARM on there, access to the AUR alone begins to make that computer feel like a workstation rather than a $200 Ultrabook. I agree. I can sit there, I can get Etcher in there, then I can use Etcher to go get a different distro that recognizes the EMMC controller and use that to flash a different operating system on to the EMMC controller. I can just take the bottom off. All of the specifications are online. There's PDF that tells you where all the components are. You can buy spare parts if you want to build one yourself. You just buy the parts and put the thing together yourself. You can do it that way. I I don't have enough good things to say about what Pine 64 is doing and how that benefits people who want to learn. I agree. 100%. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app developer, or excuse me, their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud native apps. With app platform, you can build and scale apps, static websites quickly and easily. You can simply point GitHub repository to the app platform and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their infrastructure, and so the costs are lower than with other products. Plus, they have this new app platform on top of the DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so that you can take control of the infrastructure setup. As a listener of Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free by going to do.co slash DLN. They'll give you a $100 credit. And again, you can go to do.co slash DLN to get started with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean again for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. In the community feedback this week, Egberry writes to say, Hi, DL team. I am enjoying every week's new episode of Destination Linux. Thank you very much. I would like to comment on episode 190, where you all discuss proprietary software on Linux. Even if you receive the email from my Apple account, I am a Linux fan for over 13 years now. I use Linux in my daily life, and, and I was able to ban Microsoft from my home since 2010, which is great. I could also switch my, my work life to a Linux more, a more Linux-centric work because I'm a Linux administrator through RHEL. And also, my wife is now establishing her business, and I'm always looking for Linux alternatives for her. She does use Fedora on her laptop. She uses Fedora 31 at the time. And says that uh, except for one thing that she's having an issue with is video conferencing. Here she says she uses Skype for Linux, which is great until Microsoft purchased it years ago. And now there are other options like Zoom. But what about Jitsi, for example? Have you heard of Jitsi Meet? And it is a great alternative to Zoom, also from the data protection point of, of in view. Uh, my In Germany, all, all over the European Union, in fact, we have the GDPR. And my wife could easily be sued for not declaring her video conferencing system properly because of it. A self-hosted Jitsi instance is a good choice for GDPR compliance, GDPR compliance and also has an open source video conferencing system. Could you please tell me if I'm right when I t say that Jitsi is the best solution for data protection? Uh, by the way, I'm using Arch and have a nice week. Best wishes from Germany. So thank you very Hello, much for Germany. that. Yeah, thank you very much for that uh, that that feedback, uh, Egbert. For the the, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, Jitsi is a good solution for an open source video conferencing. There are some issues in terms of its reliability, depending on the the instance that you have, because you can self host it and be more accurate about that. But if you're using like the default Jitsi Meet, it, there is kind of an issue in that sort of things. Ryan, uh, Noah, what do y'all think about this? Here's my thought on video conferencing tools like Jitsi. We have tried several times ourselves uh, to use Jitsi as a platform for destination Linux. 
And unfortunately, while it is good, and for most people in most small meetings and things, you probably would have no problem utilizing it. There are issues where you have artifacting or you're just having that voice over IP kind of pieces of voice being cut out and, and just issues that make it not as reliable as some of the mainstream ones. Now, when I say that, the mainstream ones have tons of reliability issues as well. Oh yeah, It's for just sure. easier to excuse it. Let's say you're a small business and you finally have this big enterprise customer on, but you're using Skype. If Skype starts having issues, that big company is not going to think anything of it because, well, we're all using Skype and once in a while you run into issues. But if they've never heard of Jitsi and you're on this oddball platform and you're telling them to come on and have this meeting, it may just make you look like you're a really small business using this off-the-wall application. So there are things like that to keep in mind. Now, that's not to say don't use Jitsi. That's not to say that Jitsi can't get to the point where it's as good as these options. Right. But there's a lot of things that Jitsi still needs to do for its reliability before I would say I personally would use it for my own small business. Again, depending on the scale and who I'm talking to in conferences, if it was just employees internally, sure, great. If it's dealing with other companies, I probably wouldn't deploy it. You got. I, I think there's a couple of options. I think Jitsi is definitely one way to go. But l as you correctly pointed out, Ryan, there's uh, if you can if you are willing to tweak Jitsi and get all the things right, then it will work fine. But other than that, there there could be some problems. I, I'm gonna start by recommending. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest you take a look at Talkbox. T O kbox.com. Take a look at Talksbox. It's a project called Open Talk RT, uh, RTC, which is essentially a web-based video conferencing solution that just, it's basically just a, a WebRTC plugin. Now, if you're not familiar with WebRTC, that is the little plugin that Google is using to do things like Hangouts. It's also the plugin that's used for things like Zoom and stuff like that. And so the quality there is actually going to be really, really good. And it's not going to take a lot to get set up, up and running. In fact, you can use their, they have a demo. I think it's demo.talkbox.com. And you can actually see how that works, but you can just copy that code, put it up on your own server, on your own web server. And uh, and because it's just a WebRTC plugin, that will work just fine. They have tie-ins to things like Google Authenticator. They have tie-ins to phones and stuff like that. So if you want to have the ability for people to call into those conferences, you're able to do that. Another thing that you could do, and this is what we do at AltaSpeed Technologies, we've gone with NextCloud. Uh, NextCloud Hub 20 has come out. And one of the big features of NextCloud 20 is the ability to bridge to a lot of different communication infrastructures. Now, the ones that have been around for a long time, the Jitsis of the world, the Matrixes of the world, the IRCs of the world, all of these platforms that, uh, you know, Rocket Chat, Mattermost, any of those platforms that have an open uh, infrastructure are able to tie right into NextCloud Talk. And so um, you have that that functionality right there in NextCloud. And you have the ability to send a link to a guest, and they click on it, and they open it up, and then they just drop in. Again, because you're following all WebRTC standards, the chances of that not working are slim to none. Additionally, it doesn't require any sort of proprietary software. It doesn't require any sort of client to be installed. You can specify all of the all of the, the, the you know, if you, want, if you want to specify a particular video codec or a particular frame rate or you want a particular, you know, quality size, all of those things you're able to do because you control the infrastructure. So I, I guess that's where I would start with if I was looking to, to move towards an open source video conference uh, system because there's a lot of them out there. It's just which ones are going to meet your specific needs. I love all those options. That gives a lot of different things that you could go out there and try. And definitely don't throw, we're not trying to throw Jitsi out of the option list. You could, you could try to use it, but it's one of those things where unfortunately your experience can vary depending on the application you're trying to apply it to. 
If you're going to use Jitsi, I highly recommend using Jitsi as part of a secondary platform. There's Jitsi plugins for things like Nextcloud. There's Jitsi plugins for things like Matrix. Those things are going to be a little bit easier because then you can then Jitsi is just doing the video and audio portion, and all of the rest of the stuff is handled by something else. That's so a good one. if yeah, if you if you go that route, but th don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people out there that are using Jitsi in production, and and it works fine for them. So, but it, you just have to be prepared to set all the stuff up. Once you get it set up and 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 tweaked right, it'll work fine. We love hearing from our worldwide community. So, what we want you to do is get go to the official DLN Network site and get your official DLN mug. Fill it with some coffee, sit down at the nearest stool, and send us an email. You can write that email and send it to comments at destinationlinux.org. Sounds like a relaxing evening. Yeah, exactly. We'd like to welcome back to the show Matthew Miller. Matthew is the Fedora Project Lead and serves as the chair of the Fedora Council. Matthew, welcome back into the show. Hi, glad to be here. I can't believe yeah. you came back. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, Matthew, Fedora 33 is getting a lot of hype in the community, and we wanted to start by asking, what are some of the overall design goals that you and the team had in mind for the release? Tell us a story about Fedora yeah. 33. How did it come to life? Yeah, so actually... One of the, the secrets is there are no design goals for Fedora releases. Like, uh, so Fedora is, it comes from the bottom up on, on these things in a lot of ways. And so Fedora is at its heart an integration project. So there are these thousands of open source projects out in the world. And what Fedora does is take them and try and deliver them in a polished packaged end users. Like that's, that's um, the project. Mm -hmm. And so We've been trying very hard to do that on a very regular cadence every six months. It used to be that we were a little more relaxed on that. And I one of the things we've tried to do in the last five years is make sure we actually have a, um, this uh, early May, late October schedule that we, and, and we've last, last few releases, we've hit our uh, targets, you know, basically like clockwork. Um, this current release might be a week or two delayed. We'll see how things go. Things are, there's just a lot of change. But anyways, basically, uh, we have the six month cadence and we try and see, you know, what we can do to make things better within those six months. And so our different, uh, different working groups, different editions kind of look at what's going on in their areas and put together, you know, features and changes to help improve those things. So it doesn't really start with a top-down vision for that release, but it's more of you know what's going on you know in for Fedora Workstation for example you know GNOME three thirty eight came out and so that that kind of thing is going to go into it and then people look at other different advances and improvements they want to make and propose those through our change process. So one of the arguments that I see in the forums at times is Fedora rolling release, semi rolling release. Where can you? Can you answer it once and for all how you see it? Because there's a lot of people who are, for instance, they recommend Fedora because it, they they believe it has the semi-rolling release with the kernels and the Mesa, which helps people when they're wanting to be on the cutting edge, but not completely on the cutting edge yeah. with things like, you know, AMD cards or Intel cards and things where the Mesa drivers matter that they're updated within the kernel on a regular basis. I actually have very strong opinions on this. So awesome. excellent. Glad, glad to talk about it. Um, rolling releases generally are best for the developers because they're the least work for us. Putting out a actual release on a schedule is a huge amount of work that can be actually, you know, cut down by just saying we're going to put out every, you know, every update as they go along. And if you are 
a Linux enthusiast, it's fun to follow those updates all the time, but it's also work. Like if you, you know, I, I love Arch, everybody in Arch is great, but you know, the rules are, if you're not following the news in Arch and you update and now you've got to do a lot of work to fix your system, well, you get what you expect there. It's a, it's a rolling release. And so with Fedora, we try and make it so changes that might have that kind of impact are at least encapsulated in an upgrade. So you are making you know, the decision, okay, I'm going to do this upgrade down. We try to make that as painless as possible, but we try to make it so, you know, if you just do the normal daily updates, nothing's going to break during those, during those updates. And in some ways, like I would love if we could actually make the kernel um, follow a stable thing and not have bigger kernel updates, but the kernel itself and you know, those things are are pretty well tested upstream and the regression chance is pretty low. And like you said, it does bring new enablement features to people quickly. And our, you know, our kernel team is small, so we can't really afford to have different branches gotcha. as well. But I really think that having the release cadence is actually better for most users. Um, and if you like to live on the the uh, actual bleeding edge, we do have Rawhide, which does break sometimes. But um, I've gone several years where I've run Rawhide as my main desktop and, you know, haven't had much issue with it. So you have a raw release schedule, but in between that, it seems like Fedora is usually, when you compare it to other distros that have a a, a strict cadence on their release. Fedora generally has a newer kernel, generally has the newer Mesa driver. So is there parts that you pick out that you say, hey, we're going to update these before that official release? Yeah, it generally depends on on the team of people with behind that particular thing. So the kernel team, I don't know, maybe almost 10 years ago, uh, decided that that's what they had the resources to do and that they could uh, do it effectively. Um, and so that got approved as a special exception to the updates policy. Which I love that because it, it really does help for those that are trying the newer hardware out there, like, you know, new AMD drops or new Intel GPU drops, or they do updates that you still, you're not having to wait six months before you can actually enable that, right? You've got it kind of pushed in sooner, but you're still not on that bleeding edge where things break on a more regular cadence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, kind I of my favorite, be... actually. I, I like I love the it. concept of yeah. having, I like the concept of having, you know, consistent releases. And also I like the concept of rolling, but neither really work for me. And the approach that Fedora kind of does where it does a regular release, but also have things that get past that and do sort of a rolling thing like the Mesa drivers and stuff like that. Like that kind of thing is fantastic. And it pretty much perfect to what I'm, what I'm looking for. Whenever I see uh, Fedora described as bleeding edge in a, press or thing, I kind of cringe a little bit because right. we, we try to stay back. I know some people see that as a compliment to me. That's not a compliment. We don't want yeah. to actually be injuring people and getting blood all over. Yeah, we do want to follow exactly. follow the, the leading edge. We want to be near the forefront, but um, we want to make sure we're at the point where it's not actually barbed wire and pain. <laughs> I love it. So I'm curious, one of the things that I've been looking forward to with this this new latest release of Fedora 33 is the big change to switch to ButterFS. So I'm curious what is like this. It's a lot of people have been talking about this because there's a lot of potential with the snapshot ability of ButterFS and all that sorts of stuff. So what are they like? Not, um, we know that not all capabilities of ButterFS are going to be in, enabled by default uh, on in the, the first release of this. What are some of the benefits that ButterFS provides in your opinion and also like now and in the future, what could be with the, the switch 
I very much hope, speaking of me not causing bleeding, like if nobody notices <laughs> except for people who care about file systems um, for the first release or two, um, I will consider that a rousing success. Nice. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the data integrity features, making sure that you don't have bit rot in your photo collection or whatever, those are, that that's a useful thing. Um, but actually, biggest <laughs> change that people will notice right away, and this is something that um, we see in our help forums and things, Fedora has traditionally made separate partitions for slash home and for the root so that you can, you know, your user files filling up the file system don't make it so that you can't install updates on the one hand and uh, or logs filling things up can keep so separate. And then also back when we weren't so good at upgrades, we often recommended people do a fresh install and then just preserve slash home. So that enabled that. However, that and turns out to be kind of annoying, especially if you're not like a you know sysadmin type who understands balancing things and resizing file systems and moving LVM around. And if those those words mean nothing to you, that's exactly the problem. So you end up with something where you know the defaults we've chosen turn out to be wrong, and you have plenty of space full on slash, and you filled up your home directory, and now you're out of space, and you don't know what to do about it as an end user, or the other way around, like you've got you know 200 gigabytes of home, and uh, logging went crazy, or you know, some download went to slash you know, somewhere of our temp, and then you filled up your root file system, and you have plenty of disk space left. So ButterFS lets us combine those into one thing with sub volumes and still have that um, ability to treat slash home specially for if you wanted to preserve it. So again, that's not something that most people will really notice, but we'll kind of not have that problem of people running out of space when they actually have disk free is kind of one of the big, obvious, uh, e easy wins from it. So that's not even all the fancy advanced features, but that's going to be an improvement for a lot of desktop users. Nice. I think I'm most excited about the snapshotting. For me, Absolutely. that when that gets enabled, that it's such a powerful feature to be able to roll back your system if something you do something that breaks it or an update you put in software that breaks it just to be able to reboot your system, choose one of the last ones that before your change and boom, you're back into business immediately. That to me is super exciting about ButterFS. Yeah, I, and I think that will be a nice nice thing we can work with some more in the future. We don't have anything around that right now. I know Stephen Gallagher a while ago was working on some um, plugins for the update system, so we might end up with some of those features eventually. Awesome. Yeah, it'd be really, it'd be really nice and also would cover the issue of people calling it Bleeding Edge because it's like a Band-Aid. So there you go. <laughs> sure. Matthew, we have seen that Fedora has traditionally taken a firmer stance on non-proprietary software as an inclusion by default. They want to deliver a free and open source desktop environment. Then if you want to stack proprietary stuff on top of that, and Fedora is not necessarily going to stop you, but it we do see a little bit higher of a learning curve for newcomers who come on board getting codecs and drivers, so on, so on and so forth. How is Fedora 33 balancing usability for newcomers? Yeah, that's a really hard problem because it's very important to the Fedora community that we deliver this pure open source experience. And a lot of people... Um, don't don't want to compromise on that. Um, it's important to them, and it's what they're it's what they're in this for. On the other hand, if your hardware doesn't work, um, nobody's really winning on this. So uh, the the compromise we've got right now is that we have um, some external repositories that are not part of Fedora proper um, that you can enable on first boot. 
that include things like the NVIDIA driver, Steam, some other things like that, that are proprietary software of Chrome. That would be, I think that's, I think that's one of the things there as well. Yeah. Um, that, that people, software that people often want and that if it's not available easily in Fedora, they won't say, oh, let me go find an open source alternative to Steam. I, they will say, <laughs> let me find something other than Fedora to do this on, something that isn't so hard. So the, the end goal will, should be everybody is using free and open source software for everyone. It's just a matter of making it easy for people to use wh what they have and meeting people where they are and getting them there in a gentle, hopefully not too luxury way. Yeah, I think one of the issues, you know, even as, and I'm not a super experienced user, I've only been using it for four years, but generally I could get most things to work pretty quick in any distro. And one of the things that I ran into with Fedora 33 was the codex issue. Specifically, I was just playing with it and I ran, I went to Twitch and H, I think it uses Michael was saying, because I didn't know this by hand, but H.264. And so I enabled RPM Fusion and I was kind of looking for where do I get these codecs to be able to use this website and I thought instantly about the brand new users there because I look forward to a time where we can just say, hey, if you're brand new to Linux, go to Fedora. If you're experienced with Linux, go to Fedora. Like you want That's the kind of whole gamut awesome. covered. And I know that there's some there's issues with that, right? Because it's proprietary. And a lot of times we we even talked on the show a few weeks back, like, hey, we need to focus on making sure we're pushing open source and all of this. And then when I was going through that issue, it kind of struck me as this balancing act right of how do you yeah. both make it easy for the user but also focus on that non-proprietary software is there a lot of talks about how to do this within the laws and make it so that it's yeah within the laws is key there here because some of this isn't just a moral preference but some of the things with the codex we actually can't distribute those as open source or distribute them at all we have to be really careful how, how we do those things. We want, to, we want to make it easy for people, but sometimes there's just not an actual possibility for us. Uh, Fedora is, is sponsored by Red Hat, and Red Hat owns the trademarks and you know, employs me and a lot of other people to work on it. Right. Red Hat's a U.S.-based company and is bound by U.S. law on these things. So um, some of the stuff we just, you know, people need to, we, we don't have anything to offer except for um, I hope you can configure it on your own. It's kind of the community, right? That can can step yeah. in and kind of say, hey, by the way, if you run into this issue, go install this thing and poof, right. it's yeah, done. Absolutely. Right. Is there is there any way to make actually, it simpler for like RPM Fusion getting that set up? Because if that was more easy to do that, wouldn't yeah. it be a little bit easier? Well, so, RPM Fusion super easy. You open the store and poof, you've got yeah. enable right there. Well, that the depends on what you need. You've got to go search for the codec. Well, the, some of that know. stuff is legally complicated because the difference between us making it as easy and us doing it um when you if you would get into an actual legal situation around that like i don't want to even speculate right. where the lines might be drawn in those things but on the other hand there are some things that we have done like the mp3 codec when that finally got into you know we, we when it seemed like that might be getting into the realm of being safe uh, we actually put quite a lot of engineering and legal resources into that behind the scenes to validate that uh, we, we felt safe about putting, including that in the distro. And we've done that with some other, other patented technologies nice. as well. So Red Hat actually is putting a lot of things in there that, that benefit everybody takes some time and is not very glamorous. Gotcha. <laughs>
That makes sense. Let's go back to Fedora 33 because there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about that. So what are your favorite features of 33 that you're most excited for the community to experience? Actually, I like I, I really hope people see this as a boring release um, and <laughs> in, in, in a good way. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of additional polish. I think the new GNOME desktop is nice. You know, there's a new like, here's how to use the desktop video for new users that comes up right away. Like that's been missing for a long time. Yeah, the GNOME um, tour is, is much is very nice to see. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah. 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 So there's some nice polish of things that comes in. The ButterFS is nice. I think you know, the other things like um, compressed uh, ZRAM swap. Like, again, I hope mm-hmm. nobody actually notices that, but notices that their system is more responsive, faster, and more slick. Um, so, the, yeah, there are, there's something like 60 uh, major changes in this release. Um, but honestly, like, if nobody, if everybody's like, yeah, this is another nice polished release with nothing big, I will feel like it's a success this time around, especially in 2020 with everything going on. Like, we deserve some nice. Uh, yeah. And I hope the community goes out there and tries a lot of the stuff and is giving lots of feedback and kindness as well in your feedback of, hey, we really like this. And if you have a suggestion, maybe look at this or anything visceral. But, you know, I'm really excited about a lot of these changes because it looks like Fedora really is kind of positioning itself to be that what we talked about earlier, that that beginner to super experienced user yeah. distro for everyone and some of those changes like nano are the reason why yeah. it looks like that to me because we did a whole video by the way on it's okay to use nano exactly uh, a whole section and boy did we get some interesting feedback from that yeah. one yeah right I, mean, I found it pretty enjoyable that of the major changes we were making butterfs some system d changes and uh the zram thing and the thread that had just the longest conversations and the <laughs> most vitriol was, you know, we're, we're changing the default text. And we're not even getting rid of anybody's text editors or changing like any, yeah, you, you can still use Vim. Emacs is still there. If you are a Joe user like I am, you can set your editor variable to Joe and it will work. But that's the uh, funny just, thing is anybody who's aware of that, yeah. would already know how to change their yeah. editor well, out, right? And it was interesting. A lot of the a lot of the upset came from people who really felt like having that experience of being confused by VI um, helped them level up as a, a as a you know computer person. And they wanted other people to go through that experience to help them you know grow and learn. Um, which not a very uh, good experience if, to if, do. If you're, if, if you're in it for that, that's great, but that should not be the default. Uh, and I actually encourage yeah. those people. Like, I would love to see a version of Fedora that's meant to be um, learning through command line. Here's the barbed wire jokes again, but learning <laughs> through the command line, you know, pain. Like, here's here's uh, hardcore. Uh, you wanted 1980s Linux. Or uh, Unix, right uh, here. Here's your command prompt uh, and your, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Good luck. Very plain so, Windows manager, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, are I, you, are I would you, actually love to see somebody build that because I think that's cool. Are um, you suggesting but, uh, that someone should make Fedora from scratch? Yeah, yeah, you know, or a f- uh, Fedora old school spin. Oh no, I'd it should love, be Fedora. You will bleed. That will be the name <laughs> of the distro. <laughs> One of the things I loved to see that Fedora was also working on is Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the Fedora IoT is now an official Fedora edition. So what are some of the projects you may have seen or hear whispers about that the community is leveraging with Fedora IoT? 
So I, yeah, there's some work on getting Home Assistant nicely integrated. I would actually like Fedora to be the predominant, like this is your the, the default. If you want to run Home Assistant, Fedora IoT is the thing to run it on. I love that. Um, I, I'm excited by that. I have I showed earlier at the beginning, I've got this uh, proprietary IoT device for controlling my, um, my, this is my mini split air conditioner system. And I also have a different proprietary IoT thermostat for my baseboard uh, hot water heat. And I have the goal of using Fedora IoT to tie those things both together using off the shelf components because a thermostat is actually not that hard. It is a temperature sensor and a relay, right? You just need a 24 volt switch. Like I, we, I, I can handle this. Um, but what I want, my heat pump is better, more, it, it is more cost effective down to about 50 degrees outside than using the gas boiler. And it's better for the environment down to maybe almost freezing outside because it's using electricity, which I'm paying for uh, alternative energy rather than burning fossil fuels. So what I really want is to make a system that understands what the temperature is outside and uses whichever heat source is the correct one for the situation. Because once it gets really cold, which it does, I am in New England here outside of Boston, and it gets well below freezing and the heat pump is not the thing that should be used. And so these proprietary systems, like that level of integration is not something they care about. And it's just like my, my use case is obscure to them. So they're never going to deliver that, but I, I care about it a lot. So I'm, I'm interested in hacking on that for myself. I love um, it. So that, that's my, that's my personal story. Uh, another interesting thing that happened is that uh, as we were building this, a very large oil and gas company uh, turned out to be using Fedora IoT in large-scale production wow. or uh, at, a, at scale that kind of blew my mind for it. And they came to Red Hat and said, we need this productized. And so Red Hat scrambled and did that. And that's the, um, the Red Hat's uh, I, um, RHEL for Edge product. I think that's right. I'm, I'm not a product side person, but there's actually a product that's based on this, based on large enterprise demand for the stuff that could be done. With How exciting nice. is that? Really that's exciting. amazing. It's a great success story. So Noah, you use Home Assistant, right? Or is that is that the one you're using? Now? Yes. Awesome. So you've really liked that. I hear everybody talking about, it might be just you, Noah, since you mentioned it, everyone's mentioning Home Assistant. Is that the new standard we're seeing for all of this? Automation. Mm -hmm. Yep. So going into another kind of area that people get really excited about is the Pine Phone. And there's some rumors out there that there's an official Fedora mobility project underway. We want the big reveal here. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. What what's right. kind of stuff's going on with the Pine Phone? Yeah, so I think the big reveal is that it's actually very easy to become an official Fedora project to do something you're interested in, right? So we wanted to actually make that a really low bar to if you want to form a team to work on something in Fedora, what you've got to do is find some people with some enthusiasm and uh, ability to just you know, regularly get together and work on it. And so that's that's what this initiative is. It is not a top-down kind of thing. Again, like I said, a lot of things in Fedora come from the bottom up. And I hope that I hope that we see some things here. Um, I don't know about the actual status of current Fedora releases running on the, that hardware. Um, I know that a lot of the Pine stuff does work very nicely with Fedora, um, thanks to a lot of work from Peter Robinson, who does a lot of IoT and ARM stuff. Phones in general are hard 
um, just because of all the regulatory stuff and the market and the hardware and so on. So I, I think it's a fun project. I don't think that's something we're likely to invest a lot in, at least in unless there's a an easy win success we can get to, then we then we might so look at it. But Fedora has to be thinking though, even from a Red Hat perspective, when you look across the ecosystems of operating systems, integration. I mean, half the time I'm working from my phone now. I can I can do my whole job from my phone, and then I dock my phone and I go to my laptop on my computer, and I'm working from my computer now. The integration has to be a concept that's kind of come up, and how do we integrate these worlds together? Obviously, you have things like KDE Connect and stuff for Android, but is there a lot of discussion going on about the future of integration in Fedora and Red Hat? I know that the developer group at Red Hat has some interest in in those things. Um, I think a lot of that stuff has been around web technologies um, as kind of a way you can connect from you know device agnostic way to connect to things. Uh, we haven't looked a lot at that in Fedora. Um, a lot of it just I, you know a lot of it just isn't accessible to us from a hardware point of view. And you know PinePhone is cool, but that's never going to be a mainstream thing. Right. And you know this is this is an area where you know Microsoft decided, nah, it's okay. We'll let somebody else uh, t- tackle that problem. That's kind of too hard of a problem for us, and so that's it's a difficult area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, but I also want to talk about some more. Let's just pivot. I want to stay on the hardware space because there is a lot of uh, exciting announcements related to hardware for Fedora, specifically with the Lenovo partnership. So tell us about how this relationship like came about, and uh, are there any other partnerships for Fedora in the works for other hardware vendors and that sort of stuff? Because I am super excited about the, the the laptops and the stuff like that that Fedora is doing. And like when they first announced it, it was like, yes, finally, let's do it. So I was retweeting the heck out of that. I was <laughs> exactly. geek squealing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's been a little rocky. I hope. I hope um, as we're going forward, it's going to be better and more smooth. We had some practice here, but yeah. So this came actually. The ThinkPad team at Lenovo reached out to us and said, "We're we're getting customer demand for Fedora on our laptops. We want nice. To Love that. We can do this." And I was just really happy working with them because uh, we talked earlier to another laptop vendor, which I won't name, but they were very uh, focused on how much customization and how they would get their proprietary stuff into our image and how they would have their own kernel and all of this. And we were like, yeah, we're not, we're not set up for that. And so that didn't actually go very far. Um, But when Lenovo was basically like, we would like to make no modifications. We want the out of the box stock Fedora workstation image to just work. And that's actually what, what they delivered on this. It's amazing. So they uh, have for their, their compliance reasons, they have some documents they need to add like uh, onto the desk. Uh, but that's the only change is just their documentation. Uh, no code, nothing. Uh, that is so but, huge. Yeah. And I remember people saying like in, in some of the replies to the tweet, are they going to include all their proprietary software and blah, blah, blah. And you instantly yeah. were able to shut that down and say, no, in fact, they're not adding all of that. And I think it's so important because in Linux, maybe we forget because Windows is just that operating system you boot to put Linux on your laptop. But if you spend some time in Windows lately, like the amount of junkware, especially not just from Microsoft, which has all the games and solitaires and all of their integration tools pre-installed and everything else, but from the hardware manufacturers themselves will put 20 or 30 applications on a laptop. It's a lot of work to get rid of them. And so knowing that you can get a clean 
Lenovo laptop with Fedora on it and no extras except for a few manual documents and things. That's amazing. That's a great partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I, the Lenovo people there, I'm really happy to work with them on this because they really had the right attitude towards all of this. Some of the other things like uh, this is supposed to be a worldwide launch and it's still not available outside of the U.S. and Canada easily. So that's some learning curves. And a couple of the models we'd picked ended up having supply chain issues due to COVID. Yeah, you also asked about other vendors. I'm actually, uh, I have a call with somebody next week. I can't I have nothing to reveal yet and don't know where anything is going, but we are definitely talking to other people about more things we can do to get Fedora to more people. Very cool. Very cool, yeah. With Fedora 33 right around the corner, are you looking for any help or involvement from the community? What can people do to help get Fedora 33 out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Fedora is a community-based project, and we have probably three to 4,000 people who do some little bit every, every year on, uh, on Fedora, either and you're just editing a wiki page or doing QA responses. Um, I think doing, you know, doing the testing, especially um, because we have kind of a, a tight schedule here, making sure we go through um, the, the release validation matrices. We have basically, these are the things we need to make sure are checked off before we can get the release out. Um, if you look at the Fedora test, Fedora QA pages, they've actually have really good uh, documentation on how to join and get involved in doing those things. Um, that's really helpful. Uh, looking at existing bug reports and especially our blockers for the release and saying, I can recreate this on my hardware. Um, that's super helpful. Yeah, you know, uh, if you can fix things, that's even better. Um, but uh, just even being able to test and try things out, that's that's a huge help. And uh, help with documentation as well, because that's always a hard, hard thing. I see the I edit arch wiki uh, shirt there. That's yeah, we, uh, we need that kind of dedication in Fedora doc. Yeah, well, I'm probably going to switch to a I edit Fedora doc, because uh, every time I edit it, somebody goes back in and re-edits it and changes it back because they're like it's not supposed to be that user-friendly we don't like your contribution so i yeah. will uh i'll switch my efforts over there to fedora if, if it's welcome uh it's super super welcome and yeah. Yeah, we have a, a docs uh, project that's based on ascii doc which is an easy markdown language um and antora um, and so it's all a Git-based workflow for editing the docs. Nice. I actually like it when there's a doc system that doesn't involve a wiki. I much prefer that because the wiki syntax is just so convoluted. And like hearing Markdown is like, finally, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Uh, wiki, like you can do clever things, but it's a trap because the more clever things that do you do, the more you'll regret it later. <laughs> That's the, my, my opinion. Yeah. I like the idea of the wiki system, but not necessarily, you know, adding two wiki systems. <laughs> What I love about that is you don't have to be a technical, right? You're not looking, I mean, programmers always help and developers always help, but anybody can get in there and start helping with documentation and other things. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's true in Fedora in general, documentation, design, testing, it, yeah, programming is important and packaging, which is, you know, not really programming, but just you need to have that kind of a little bit of basic programming or system and knowledge to do that. But just like at, at any engineering company, software company, like the engineering part is the, the programmers, like that's actually going to be a minority of the company and you need all those other people to actually make it work. And that's true in an open source project too. And a lot of times you end up with the programmers and engineers doing double duty as other things. And that's why you get, you know, UX made by programmers uh, instead of by UX designers and so on. Yep. So we actually, we actually really can use all the help from all the other other skills that people have. Not that, again, 
programming is important. Coding, every, you know, coding is great, and we can use lots of help in those areas as well. But there's really room wherever your skill set is to work on Fedora or another open source. Yeah, actually, I started wanting to contribute when I was I was talking to Neil, for example, and was, I was giving like suggestions about how you could improve Fedora KDE. And he was like, "Yeah, if you just send us some ideas, then we'd be happy to look at it." I was like, "Wait, really?" Well then, okay. Here's like somebody 50. wants my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, they've now they've now retracted that offer for you, Michael. But everyone else, yeah, exactly. Like uh, we appreciate. Like we didn't realize what we were getting into. But thanks right. anyway. <laughs> they've had a they've had to hire a separate development team just to handle Michael's request. Yeah, right. He's very passionate about KDE. I mean, it's a it's a delicate balance with ideas because there certainly are lots of ideas, and you know there are a lot of. I I made a comment somewhere about you know filing bugs like. There are plenty, like we don't have a lack of bugs. So filing more bugs, like um, it's always appreciated, but it, it can also be kind of overwhelming. So as long as you don't necessarily expect somebody to jump and take your suggestions, uh, it's still, it's still, yeah, still useful. For sure. But, uh, I, I'm just going to, I just give an onslaught of options because I've been thinking about improving <laughs> the UX for KDE for yeah. years. So I have plenty. And then just anyone knowing that people are interested is, 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 you know, something that I've, you know, when as soon as it was suggested, like I, I started testing out Fedora. I I set up Fedora 33 with the beta, actually before the beta. So like I, I'm I'm very excited about it because it's like you said, having designers do the design work is what every project should look at, and it's not it's not always the case. So you know, as a designer, I was very excited to hear that that was you know something that Fedora was interested in. So yeah. that's why I, I started doing the suggestions. I don't expect people to do it like right now. But you know, as soon as possible, be nice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, they'll get their team right on it. Matthew Miller, he is the the Fedora project lead. And Matthew, thanks you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, we'll get you back in the program real soon. Thank you. It's always fun. I'll be glad to be back. Awesome. I can't believe he said that. We're gonna have you back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do it. In the news with this week, we're going to talk about LibreOffice 7.0.2. LibreOffice has announced this new minor release of their productivity suite for the uh, Office suite that you may know and love because LibreOffice is known for a long time as being the go-to open source uh, an open standard for Office suites on Linux and just in general. And unlike Microsoft Office, the LibreOffice team makes sure that documents created can be used anywhere at any time. Yeah, one of the things that really impressed me is they had an interview with one of the folks behind LibreOffice and they were talking about the complexity that they have to go through every time Microsoft mm -hmm. Office releases a new version. Because if you don't know, Microsoft Office has their own standard. They don't follow anybody's standard. It's all this monstrous proprietary glob of code that they just keep adding to. And so LibreOffice has to go through and basically reverse engineer all of this to try to figure out, well, how do we translate what Microsoft Office Word's doing here so that when somebody opens it up in LibreOffice, they can have it without all the formatting be off and everything else. And not only do they not use standards in, or proprietary code in Microsoft Office, but they also do odd things that, for instance, use tabs or spacebar to, to basically design a document, different formats of a document that LibreOffice then has to translate as well. So they have, they have to find all these obscurities, translate it all so that you as an end user can just open up that DocX document and be able to get to work without having to pay for that Office suite which is quite impressive when you think about the amount of work that goes into this and the fact that we can just open it 
and start using it on any Linux distro is quite amazing. And I just really want to give a shout out to that team and thank them for giving us an office suite on Linux with an open standard that we've used for years that we can enjoy because without it, really, we'd all be having to log into Google Docs or log into Office 365 Online, which uh, Office 365 Online is a, it doesn't have all the same features that the local uh, office has. It also has a limitation on the file size that you can open depending on if you have a business account or not. So that can create a ton of issues for people. So I'm just really thankful for the work that team does. And I wanted to have them on for an interview soon. So I'm hoping we can get that arranged. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And also just a quick note, I wanted to give them like a, you know, happy birthday, basically, because they did a 10th anniversary of LibreOffice this year. And also they're doing the LibreOffice conference in addition with OpenSUSE, like a joint conference thing. And that is happening this week uh, on October 15th through the 17th. So check that out if you want to attend it, because, you know, thanks again to LibreOffice for existing, I guess. <laughs> there you go. I mean, hey, how else are you going to put it? Right? Speaking of conferences, though, Michael... In the gaming section, we're going to talk about conferences as well. Right. And this one kind of surprised me. And apparently it's not a new thing, but Debian has a gaming conference. It's a it's a conference that within a conference, basically, it's like the mini dev conference happening for like two days of the four days for the other conference kind of thing. And they're going to be talking about game development and uh, game uh, play, just playing games and stuff like that on uh, and also just contrib- contributions to game development in terms of like music and graphics and that sort of stuff uh, on Debian, uh, because they said that the there, there's been an, like an emergence of like people interested in gaming on Debian. And uh, I'm very interested to see what happens with that, because, I mean, I've never known Debian to be a gaming centric kind of thing. So I'm I'm pretty cu- I'm very curious to like what this is going to entail and what kind of like efforts are going to be put into gaming for Debian. Yeah, I think it's super exciting and I'm very happy to see distros get into gaming because we've talked about in the past how critical it is to the industry, how big of an industry it is on top of that. But they're going to have game developers there to talk about their experiences with developing, how they fund their projects, how they remain sustainable. So if you're somebody who is interested in creating games, that would be a really good conference for you to join to kind of understand how you can make money from that. They're going to cover the free games and free game engines and free game creation tools. So if you've been ever interested in making games, there, again, more info that you can grab there. They're going to look at tools uh, to create graphics, music for games. They're going to talk about fixing bugs and related issues. So the schedule is going to be posted out there. It's going to be a four-day uh, event. So go check it out. We'll have the link in the show notes. We continue our exploration of the Linux file system in our tips, tricks section. So far, we've covered slash temp, bin, boot, dev, Etsy, lib, media, opt, proc, and root and run. This week, we're going to cover slash Espen. Now, slash Espen is nearly the same as slash bin that we've already covered. However, it contains applications that are not accessible to the normal user. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna diverge just a little bit here. We're going to talk about uh, a, a, a couple different ones. So we've talked about slash bin, the directory for uh, that contains executable programs, which are needed in both single user mode when you want to recover the system, as well as if you want to repair it. Today, we're talking about Espen. And like And like slash bin, the directory has commands needed to boot the system. The difference is these commands are not usually executed by normal users. I'm also going to include slash user slash bin, which is the directory for executable programs um, that are owned by normal users, but not needed during booting or repair. And slash user slash local, which are where programs are, uh, where they store 
local to the site. Um, you'll see this in Golang a lot. Slash user slash local slash bin binaries again, that are local to the site and slash user slash local slash SBIN locally installed programs for system administration. And so essentially when you see BIN, it is, it's, it's representative of binary. There's code there that you can execute. Uh, SBIN is, think of it as just like a, a, a folder that contains binaries for privileged users. If you want to learn more, we continue to invite you to come back to check out the tips and tricks section at the end of every episode. If you want to learn more about temp BIN, boot, dev, Etsy, lib, media, app, proc, brute, or run, we invite you to check out one of our past episodes where we've explained those. Nice. In the software spotlight this week, we're going to talk about another thing that is made by Nextcloud, and that is some awesome features like Deck. So Deck is a Kanban, a Kanban board system similar to Trello and that sort of stuff, and it is fantastic. We've been using it for DLN uh, work for you know organizing things about different you know tasks that we're going to do and that sort of stuff. I've been using it as well on my personal uh, uses for a while. When I first switched to uh, Next Nextcloud for doing like calendar structure and that sort of stuff, I, I was looking for like is there what kind of to do system do they have? And finding a Kanban based system like Deck was really nice to see. And the latest release of Nextcloud 20, like Noah talked about earlier, has a lot of cool stuff, including upgrades to Deck, which is fantastic because there was one issue that I always kind of felt like if this if if it Deck had this, it would be just fantastic and perfect for a lot of use cases. And it was integration with the calendar. It didn't have it. But with Nextcloud 20, it does have integration with the calendar and also integration with their new global search functionality, which is just really awesome to see. So if you're wanting to check out a really cool task management system that can integrate with your calendar, then check out the deck system of Nextcloud, especially if you already have a Nextcloud instance, you need to check it out because a Kanban system is something I think is a very cool way to organize, especially if you're just not just an individual person. Like there are many methods of doing individual uh, task management and that sort of stuff, but you're doing like uh, project organization or team integrations and stuff like that. I mean, we project manage the For entire sure. DLN creators network in here. So all the creators can go in and focus on moving stuff around and yep. different projects. And we know what everyone's working on really helps us organize. Yeah, absolutely. Check out Nextcloud deck. If you want to check out uh, an open source Kanban based system. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want more DL, become a patron like all these beautiful faces here with us now and get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events like Game Fest, which there's one that's coming up we'll be announcing soon, live recordings of Destination Linux. So you get to interact with the show live and come out and hang out with the crew. And also go check out the DestinationLinux.network store by going to dlnstore.com. You can pick up some swag where you have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and stickers. Yes, stickers. Get a sticker sheet with all the shows and pimp your laptop, desktop, RV, whatever you want. Even maybe wallpaper your room if you want to. All, all this stuff. I'd like could, to see that. Yeah, exactly. All you can do, you can do all this stuff by going to dlnstore.com. It's time for you. Yeah, you, right there on your couch. To join the DLN community, Michael's been busy this week setting up Matrix, Telegram, Discord, Bridge. So join a room with over a thousand community members discussing open source Linux and everything else in the platform of your choice. This week, we've got lots of discussion on Arch Linux, 4K monitors necessary, uh, ARM devices, the history of turbo memory. Want to know what the heck turbo memory is? Was it a complete waste of time or is it ahead of its time? We're not going to tell you. You'll have to join the discussion. Everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.
<laughs> Perfect. Love it. Now we know it's over. Yes, that's when you know. All right. So patrons, join us. You can turn your cameras on, your tam- cameras on, your microphones on. How's it going, patrons? Welcome. Hello. Hello. It's going. That is deep right there. That so one? this is great. That you one. say, turn your cameras back on. Droid cam dies. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, great. at the uh, same time. That's what happens. 